Good morning. If you have a Bible, open it up to Philippians chapter 2. We're going to be in verses 5 through 11 this morning. Uh, one of uh, the most famous passages in the book of Philippians, and maybe uh, one of the best known in the New Testament, and uh, one of my favorites. So I'm excited to walk through this passage this morning. As you're kind of getting there, I do want to highlight again the Walk Through the New Testament seminar, which is on Saturday from 9 to 3. If you've never done one of these Walk Through the Bible seminars, I really would encourage you to come out to them. It sounds like a long time, but it flies by. It is one of the most fun exercises I've gone through to learn the flow of the Bible. We did the Old Testament one last year. I've done the New Testament one before. Every time I do one of these seminars, I walk away with a better understanding of just kind of the flow of the Bible. If you're one of those people that maybe you've grown up in church, but you still have a hard time going, all right, what book is that in? Or what is kind of the sequence of events? You've got a bunch of stories in your head, but want to really know how do they fit together? This really is the, the seminar for you. I've walked away through these, having learned in some cases more than I learned in some seminary classes about uh, which prophet of the Bible is which, which writer wrote which book, which person did what throughout the book of Acts, throughout the gospel. So I'd encourage you guys to come out. It's just $10 and it will be, I, gar- I really can guarantee it'll be worth your time. You won't regret coming to that seminar. So hope to see you guys there. All right, Philippians chapter 2. I'm going to start in verse 5. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Do you pray with me? Father, we praise you because of what we just sang, that your only Son became human flesh. And in the man, Jesus, all of the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. We praise you that he condescended to our level so we might be raised up to be with him. God, it's a mystery we don't understand, but we acknowledge the truth that we are called to imitate the example of Christ. Father, I pray as we study your word this morning, you really would help us understand it through the power of your spirit, open up our minds that we might know what it has to say to us. I pray that you would move in our hearts to soften them and see those areas where we're deficient. And Father, I pray that we would then obey. Because this is as difficult to obey as it is to understand, perhaps more so. And so Father, I pray that you would provide us with the strength, the humility, the ability that we need to do your will. We pray all of this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Ran across an article uh, about a week and a half ago about a megachurch pastor out in Atlanta, a man named Eddie Long. And I really don't know a whole lot about him, except that uh, he pastors apparently one of the largest churches in the United States, but he's been 
uh, in some trouble in the last year or so. He's had some personal problems, some uh, relational problems. He's had some accusations uh, flying at him. But in this article, uh, it begins by saying this, Bishop Eddie Long has been called anointed, but he was recently awarded another title as shown in a video that's gone viral. He's now a king. Long was wrapped in a Torah and crowned a king during a recent Sunday ceremony at New Birth Missionary Church, his suburban Atlanta congregation. A visiting rabbi wrapped Long in the Torah, which he said was recovered during the Holocaust. The rabbi then directed four men to lift a seated Long in his chair and parade him before the New Birth congregation. Long wiped tears away as he looked over his cheering congregation. He is a king. God's blessed him. He's a humble man, but in him is kingship, royalty, Rabbi Ralph Messer shouted. Word of the pastor's crowning ceremony spread across the web. A rabbi and Christian scholar questioned Long and Messer, the man who led Long's crowning ceremony. But Messer said he wanted to honor Long on behalf of the Jewish people and the land of Israel. A number of uh, theologians uh, were not impressed with the ceremony, came out and said Christian pastors are almost always spoken of as servants, as exemplified by Jesus in the New Testament. Uh, Long came out later in the week and he apologized. He said the ceremony was not his idea. He's not a king. He's just a servant. But as I read that article, uh, a couple of things struck me. The first was, it's hard to fathom doing a ceremony like that in my church on the one hand, partly because I can't imagine the conversation that would lead to later with my senior pastor when he says, what did you do this week in the college service? I said, well, here's what we did. We got four interns and a throne. And they held me aloft while I held a scepter and they wrapped me in a robe and they put a crown on my head and they crowned me king. I'm now king of all I survey. Bow to me, serfs, right? Can't imagine doing that because the response would be, all right, you're fired, right? That would be the next words out of his mouth. But then there's another part of me, if I'm honest, that says, I kind of would like to be a king kind of like to have people bow before me or obey my every whim. I'd kind of like people to respect me like that. Uh, maybe I'm the only one that has ever felt that way, but I think, uh, hey, it'd be kind of nice. And so there's this little part of me that, that dwells in the darker parts of my heart that says, I would like to be honored like that. And the truth is, if it happened, it wouldn't go to the web, right? Because nobody knows my name. And there's a part of me that says, boy, I would like that. And that's the way of our world, isn't it? Uh, We want to be powerful. We want to be respected. We want, when we say something, for people to obey. We want to have certain rights and privileges that we say, this is mine, and I can do what I want. And if I do this, you got to step back and pay attention to me. That's the way of our world. We expect, in fact, that those who have money, fame, power, will get what they want. And the only reason we don't is because we can't. But we strive for that, don't we? I'll never forget years ago, uh, I was in band in high school. So there's just a little tidbit about me. I played the saxophone and uh, about to share something else. And that is I actually went to band camp one summer and uh, went to band camp. And while we were there, we happened to share this camp with a football camp at the same time. I know it's, it's an interesting image, isn't it? So, uh, 
Here you have, uh, we were at this camp to learn from some premier musicians, orchestral musicians, and then literally on the other side of the parking lot, there are pro football players and high school football players going through these clinics. And so we even shared the lunchroom. And one day we are uh, going through the line, and I've got a friend from high school, her name is Lauren, and Lauren was one of these people that never was shy about speaking her mind. And as we're going through the line, uh, this huge guy just walks up in the line and just steps right in front of her, pushes his way through, grabs a plate, starts to dish up his food. Lauren looks up at him. She's about four foot 11, 90 pounds soaking wet, right? Looks up at this guy who's six foot four, 240 pounds and goes, excuse me. The guy turns around. Uh, His name was Jay Novacek. Some of you uh, will recognize that name. Some of you will not. He was a tight end for the Dallas Cowboys, five-time pro bowler, turns around, and just turns back around and keeps getting his food, right? She had no idea who he was. Sat down, we go, do you know who that was? And told her, and she goes, I don't care who he was. He shouldn't cut in front of me, right? And that was Lauren. But you know what? We laughed at her because we said, well, he's bigger, right? He's stronger. He's more powerful. That's what we expect. If you can claim your rights, claim them. If you can be in charge, do it. That's the way of our world. Famous song by Bob Marley, get up, stand up, stand up for your rights. He says that about 12 times, and then he says, uh, <laughs> preacher man, don't tell me heaven is under the earth. I know you don't know what life is really worth. It's not all that glitters is gold. Half the story's never been told. Do you see the light? Stand up for your rights. Next verse, most people think great God will come from the skies, take away everything, Make everybody feel high. But if you know what life is worth, you will look for yours on earth. And now you see the light. You stand up for your rights. Ja. We sick and tired of your ism schism game, dying and going to heaven in a Jesus name, Lord. Now know when we understand almighty God is a living man. You can fool some people sometimes, but you can't fool all the people all the time. So now we see the light. What are you going to do? We're going to stand up for our rights. That's our world's attitude. Marley says, don't tell me there's a day coming when I'm going to be rewarded in heaven for sacrificing things on earth. He says, give me mine right now. And if you and I are honest, that's the attitude of our hearts a lot of times. Now, again, we may not have the power to push people around like some others, but you walk home or you drive home to your dorm or your apartment this afternoon, and I guarantee you there are certain rights that you're going to insist upon. My roommate should keep the common areas clean. I shouldn't have to clean up after him. I shouldn't have to always be the one that mows the lawn. My professor should respect my time. How dare that professor not realize that I've got four other classes? Why would he give me that much work? One day you're going to probably get married, probably have kids, and you're going to go, why is it that I'm responsible to bathe this little person? Right? Clean up after that person. Some of you work jobs where you do tasks that you see as beneath you. And you just long for the day when you'll get to do things that are important and other people will be doing those things. It's the way of our world. As we've looked at the book of Philippians, the thing that we've seen Paul continually exhorting these people toward is to devote their lives to service of the gospel of Jesus Christ, to its proclamation 
and then to living it out in their lives. But one of the big challenges that they're facing is the same thing you and I face day after day after day, which is amongst them, they are fighting for their own rights, for their own privileges, and they won't let them go. And as a result, there's conflict in the church, and that is preventing the spread of the gospel because they're not living it, and then they're not proclaiming it because they're so focused on fighting with each other. And so in our passage last week, what we saw was Paul saying, do nothing, nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit, but with humility of mind, consider others better than yourselves. And here he begins this passage and he says, have this attitude, which was also in Christ Jesus. And then he's going to describe Jesus as the preeminent illustration of what it means to set aside your rights. And what's great about this passage is as Jesus set aside his privileges and his rights, as he condescended to come down to our level. Ultimately, he secures our salvation. God raises him up and he is now both our savior and our light and example. And so Paul says, your task as a Christian then, when it comes to your rights, is to let him go. Now, I want to be clear. He's not saying that this is what is necessary to earn eternal life. You can never earn favor with God. Right, if you don't know Jesus, the thing you need to know is that what Jesus did, what we're talking about in this passage this morning, that Jesus did, that's what secures your salvation. And all that is necessary to know that you have eternal life is recognize that uh, you're a sinner, you've disobeyed God, and Jesus died in your place. He took the death and the punishment that you and I deserve, and then he rose again. And all who believe in him have eternal life. But what Paul is saying in this passage is this. That if you know Jesus, your life belongs to him. And the task and mission of your life is to proclaim him with what you say, with what you do, with what you think, with what your attitudes are. And Jesus is the preeminent illustration of that because if Jesus was God in human flesh, if anybody had a right to insist upon people doing things his way, it was Jesus. And yet he set them aside voluntarily. We're getting into a passage this morning that is difficult to understand, and as I said a moment ago, even more difficult perhaps to obey. It's one of those passages that I look at and I love it. In fact, my wife and I inscribed Philippians 2 on the inside of our wedding bands when we got married to remind us of the sacrificial example of Jesus Christ, and I believe this passage and I preach it, and yet I don't live it very well because I have rights that I want to cling to. I want to have my free time. I want to have my space. I want to have people respect me. And those attitudes creep into my heart and keep me from doing what Jesus is calling me to do. And what Paul is calling us to now is to imitate the example of Jesus Christ. Let's look at uh, this passage in a little bit more detail. The first thing that Paul states very simply is imitate Christ's example. Verse 5. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. In other words, think the same way that Jesus thought. That's literally what this means. Have this mindset, this attitude that was in Christ Jesus. Think the way he thought. He points them now to say, Jesus is our ultimate role model. And if you're a Christian in here, my guess is you'd go, yeah, absolutely. Jesus is my role model. I want to be like Jesus. I want to do what Jesus did. I want to say the things that Jesus said, and I want to have the attitudes toward others that Jesus did. But the reality is, as you look at this passage, it becomes rather shocking when you think about what it would mean to actually do that. And as we look at our world, most of us do not, in this culture, 
have a role model like Jesus Christ who set aside his rights. I ran across a survey that was done just this past year of young men, about 2,000 young men, and they asked them, who are your role models? All right, here's some of the results. 8% said actors and entertainers. 24% said athletes. 35% said entrepreneurs, people like Steve Jobs, Bill Gates. 31% said something kind of scary. I'm my own role model. Now, maybe that, that you would say, that's almost a third of young men. I'm my own role model. Think what that means. If I take something from you, I'm my own role model. I admire me. Look at me. I'm a role model. That's ridiculous. But that's the reality of our culture. People say, don't look to anybody but you. You do what makes you happy. You do what brings you praise. The other people we tend to look to, people who've paved their own path, made a lot of money doing it, people the world idolizes, athletes, actors, entertainers. It's fascinating. Uh, Apparently, there were no significant percentages that said anybody who gave to others. That's both disheartening, but also that's the reality of our world. Paul says, you have this attitude that was in Christ Jesus different kind of role model. What would it look like in today's world if there were men and women that said, I want to imitate the example of Christ, to willingly set aside my privileges and rights, if necessary, to willingly and joyfully suffer for the name of Jesus Christ. What would that look like? A lot different from this. So this begins with a a mindset shift. And the mindset shift is this. I don't deserve anything good. What I deserve is to be punished for my sin. Now, what has God given me? Eternal life. Riches of the Holy Spirit. And so now I, in imitation of Jesus Christ, will set aside these privileges. And Paul goes into more detail about what Jesus did says, give up your rights. Look at verses 6 through 8. I'll start back in 5 again, just to get the flow. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So here's Jesus who it says he didn't consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. All right, what that's saying is this, Jesus is equal to God. Think about John 1, the word in the beginning was the word. That's Jesus and the word was with God and the word was God. He's equal to God in every respect and yet it says he didn't consider that equality with God a thing to be grasped. And what does that mean? It means that he didn't consider his authority, his position, his privilege, a way to take for himself. But instead, he considered it a position from which to give to you and me. It doesn't mean that he stopped being God when he became a man. It means instead he set aside rights and privileges that were his. Some of you may have watched the show Undercover Boss. Anybody seen that show? Okay. Interesting show, right? Now, uh, it's reality TV, and so lots of it is fake, but uh, 
It is an interesting show because the idea is this, that a CEO or somebody at the top of the company goes undercover in his own company and he stands on the uh, assembly line or whatever it is and he tries to do jobs that the average people do. And it's a fun show to watch. Uh, One reason it's so fun to watch is because almost invariably these CEOs have no idea how to do that job. I remember seeing one where there's a guy that owns a large fast food chain and uh, he has to go into a factory where they're making hamburger buns and they're trying to bag them, a big pallets of hamburger buns and this poor guy just can't get it, right? The machine slides the things along and he crunches up about 500 hamburger buns trying to get them in these bags and he goes, ah, throws them away. Another one, ah, throws them away. And, and you're watching, you're going, this guy's learning curve is pretty slow, Right? for a CEO. And what's interesting about it is I watched it and I thought, what would happen if they actually put a guy like, say, Donald Trump in there, right? You think he'd stand for that? No, right? He'd fire the machine. He'd fire the guy standing next to him. He'd fire everybody in the factory, right? It's everybody else's fault, right? But it's an interesting show because here you've got guys that are sitting at the pinnacle of their power and uh, they lower themselves to stand next to the guy on the line. Now, A cynical person could say they're doing it for publicity, they're doing it for a tax deduction, whatever it may be. Uh, When we look at the New Testament, Philippians chapter 2, you can't say that about Jesus. Jesus sits next to God in heaven, and he lowers himself. It says he emptied himself. The Greek word there is kenosis, which means to empty. Again, that doesn't mean that he stopped being God. There's a great mystery here that Jesus, who is God, becomes man. All right, the theological term for that is called hypostatic union. Two natures, human and divine, together in one man. Yet what Jesus does, it says he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. He became a servant. And all through Jesus' life, you see him willingly give up prerogatives and privileges of deity on our behalf. In his temptation, Matthew 4, the devil comes to him and says, look, uh, you've got all this power and authority. Why don't you take these stones, turn them into bread? Then you won't need to be hungry anymore. And Jesus says, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Father. In other words, he says, I will choose to depend upon my Father, even though he could do that. Satan says, throw yourself off this cliff, And the angels will pick you up and save you. Jesus says, that's true, but I will not test God. When he's on the cross, men jeering at him say, if you are so powerful, if you're the son of God, if you're the Messiah, come down. And he could have, but he exercises restraint. Mark 13, 32, we see Jesus seemingly willing to give up the prerogative of knowing every single thing says that nobody knows the the coming time of the Son of Man. Not even I do. So there's this huge mystery and tension between the fact that here is a man who also exists as God, and he set aside these privileges and rights to become, to take on the form of a servant. And the greatest illustration of that I think we see is in John chapter 13. Keep your finger in Philippians 2. Go back for a minute to John chapter 13. This is at the Last Supper. Now, before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. 
During supper, the devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, got up from supper and laid aside his garments, and taking a towel, he girded himself. Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. So he came to Simon Peter. He said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, what I do, you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. Peter said to him, never shall you wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, he who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason, he said, not all of you are clean. So when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you ought also to wash another's feet. For I gave you an example that you should do as I did to you. All right, uh, who really likes feet? Touching other people's feet? Anybody? Okay, no hands. Oh, that one guy. Okay, good. It's our future podiatrist. All right. Most of us don't. Somebody puts their bare foot on your dinner table. What are you going to say? Get it off the table, right? I have uh, three kids and occasionally they will want me to look at something on their feet. A a cut, a scrape, a blister, a corn, whatever it is. Uh, Yuck, right? I don't like feet. Now, what's interesting is in biblical times, their feet were even dirtier because they wore sandals, because the roads weren't clean, and they would walk along, their feet would get caked with mud and dust and all kinds of nastiness. So when you stepped into a home, uh, you would need to wash your feet so you didn't get the house all dirty and messy, and they would usually have a slave. The lowest of the low in the household would kneel down, grab a towel, and wash your feet before you walked into the house. So here's Jesus, the son of God, and it says he knows that God's given him everything. He knows where he came from. He knows where he's going. So he's coming from a place not of inferiority, but of absolute security in who he is. All right, think about that. We think servants are people who have low self-esteem. All right, that's a lie. Jesus understood exactly who he was. And that's why he's able to serve. He kneels down and he washes feet. Peter's uncomfortable with that because... He knows who Jesus is. And Jesus says, yeah, you should be a little uncomfortable with this. Now you go do the same thing. If the God of the universe can humble himself to that point, that's what you and I are called to do. And Philippians 2 goes even further to say, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, the lowest form of death you can imagine. Uh, One scholar, F.F. Bruce, says this, in polite Roman society, the word cross was an obscenity, not to be uttered in conversation. They didn't wear crosses around their necks. It was a form of torture. In fact, Deuteronomy 21.23 says, anybody who's hung on a tree is under the curse of God. So you see Jesus going from the heights of heaven to the lowest depths to set aside his privileges for the glory of God and the sake of our salvation. That's a stunning passage. And it ought to shock us a bit. It ought to throw us for a loop. 
Because the question then that's implied is if Jesus could do that, what prevents us from doing the same? What if you went home this afternoon and you said, you know, I'm going to go and I'm going to wash my roommate's toilet without asking. Some of you just threw up a little bit in your mouth, right? I can remember one summer I worked at a camp and some of you guys have worked at camps and this was a family camp and they recruited me to be on music staff to uh, sing, play piano, play different instruments. And so they recruited me for this task and I went there and I was excited about it. And they also said, by the way, there's some kind of uh, waiter duties that you're going to do. There's some other service you're going to do great. Uh, But for some reason that didn't all sink in until I got there and realized that more than half of my time was serving food to other people and cleaning up their messes. Now, other people's food disgusts me. I don't like it. I don't like picking up other people's dirty napkins. I don't like picking up their dirty plates. And then on the weekends, we cleaned the restrooms and the hotel rooms that they stayed in. And there was this huge kind of contrast between standing on a stage and leading people in worship and having people go like this to then going to this place where I was scrubbing toilets and picking up food that had been in someone's teeth. And the implication of this passage is, uh, why shouldn't I be willing to do that? Why do I think I'm above it? If Jesus, the Son of God, was willing to humble himself. But watch what happens in verses 9 through 11. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. All right, not only does the passage call us to give up our rights, but ultimately it says, wait for your reward. Passage calls us to wait for our reward. We see as God exalting Jesus, there's a principle in the scripture that those who humble themselves will be exalted. James 4, 6 Let me read this passage to you. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you, James 4.10, all right? And you see this principle all the way throughout the scripture that your reward is not now, all right? Jesus humbled himself and was willing to die on our behalf. And then what happens is his reward comes after that and it says God exalted him to the highest place and bestowed on him the name which is above every name that at the name of Jesus, what will happen? Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess what? That Jesus Christ is who? is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. It's not that Jesus became God after his resurrection. It's this, that God bestowed on him this honor that the whole universe now will bow before Jesus and acknowledge who he really is, that his name is Lord, the supreme ruler of the universe. Right following on his humiliation and condescension, God exalts him to the highest place. And every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. Now, we we say that line a lot. It's in songs. In fact, there's a well-known song, Come, Now is the Time to Worship. And what does it say? One day, every tongue will confess you are Lord. One day, every knee will bow. And then it says, still the greatest treasure remains for those who gladly choose you now. All right, it's a lovely song, beautiful song. But here's the problem. There is no other treasure for those who don't choose him. What does this passage imply? One day, every tongue will confess, every knee will bow before Jesus. Some will do so voluntarily. Now, others will do so 
involuntarily later. Even those who reject him will one day bow before him in acknowledgement of who he is. You and I don't have the same privileged position as Jesus. Nonetheless, the implication of this passage is this. Your reward is not now. It's later. Paul talks in 2 Timothy about a crown of life God will give to all who love his appearing, all who set aside their privileges and rights now to pursue the gospel of Jesus Christ. God will give the crown of life. Your reward's not now. I worked uh, at a grocery store when I was in high school, and uh, not the most glamorous job. I was a checker. I was a bagger. And I'll never forget one day, I was just kind of doing my job, and there was this one customer that came in all the time, and he was always a little bit cranky, always a little bit specific about the way he wanted his groceries placed in the bag. He had certain arrangements that he liked and didn't like, and uh, I would always do my best, but after he left, I would breathe a sigh of relief that he was gone. And uh, I was... I had had this guy come through earlier in the day, and about 30 minutes later, the man uh, walked back up to my register. Now think about the implication of that. He got in his car, he drove to his house, he recognized that the universe was askew because his groceries were mishandled. He got back in his car, drove back to the grocery store with the bag that was the problem, and walked up to me and showed me how his bread had been mashed and proceeded to call me all kinds of things, lazy, stupid, irresponsible. I was the worst human being that could possibly have emerged from the slime that we call this earth, right? And I remember standing there thinking, how do I process a moment like this? Okay, I definitely made a mistake. Well, if I'm thinking that my reward is now, what do I do? I tell him something like this. I make $5 an hour. Uh, this is a nice neighborhood. I'm guessing you make upwards of six figures a year. It's a loaf of bread. There's more down the aisle. They cost $1.25, right? Go get one. That's if I'm thinking my reward is now. But if I recognize a passage like this, I go, you know what? I don't represent ultimately uh, me. I don't even represent Tom Thumb. I represent Jesus Christ. And I don't honestly remember how I responded to him. I wanted to keep my job, so I'm sure I just gave him another loaf of bread for free. But my attitude was, how dare you? How dare you? I deserve better. But I don't. And I'm called to remember that my reward is not now. When I reflect Jesus by setting aside these rights and privileges... I continue to remind myself, as the scripture does, that there is a reward for those who will be faithful. And it's later. And this may be a challenge for you. When you graduate, your temptation is going to be to go find the most prestigious, best-paying job you can find. And maybe that God calls you to something different. Not that that it is bad to have a high-paying job if that's where God places you, and if you can use that position for his glory. But it may be that God calls you to something different. It may be that God calls you to spend your days in obscurity, taking care of those who need your assistance and help, sharing the gospel in places where they'll never know your name. 
It may be as simple as when you go back to work this week, you're going to serve in ways that nobody notices without complaining, without coming to tell your boss how you did it. You're going to share and be kind and give and serve your roommates and your friends in ways they may not ever appreciate because you follow the example of Jesus Christ and you look forward to the reward that is coming. There's a famous story of a missionary uh, from the early part of the 20th century that had been serving in Africa for 25 years and he and his wife finally retired. They got on a boat and they came home and it just so happened that their ship as they were coming in was the same ship that carried the president of the United States, Teddy Roosevelt. And he was coming back from an African hunting safari. And this missionary is beginning to think as they approach the United States, will anybody remember us? Who's going to be there to greet us? Where, where are going to be the accolades for our 25 years of service? They pull into port and there's a huge parade for Teddy Roosevelt because he killed an elephant. Nobody there to meet this missionary and his wife. The guy frustrated and bitter leaves the boat, goes back to his hotel room, begins to complain to the Lord, Lord, why is it that nobody was there for me when I came home? This guy says he had a distinct impression from the Lord that right at that moment, God said, because you're not home. You're not home. Your reward is coming. The same is true of you and me. Let me ask you a couple of questions as we close. And Jamie and the band are going to come up and close us with a couple of songs. Let me ask you this. What rewards are you chasing? When you do the things that you do throughout the week, throughout your days, what rewards are you chasing, if you're honest? What do you want people to give you, to recognize about you, to see in you? What kind of accolades, what kind of comfort, what kind of financial benefit are you hoping to get? What rewards are you chasing? And secondly, what rights are you called right now to set aside in imitation of Jesus Christ? Recognizing because of what he has done for us, we belong to him. Our lives belong to him. And he's called us to proclaim him with how we think, what we say, what we do. What rights is he calling you to set aside? Father, we praise you because you have given your son, because even though we are undeserving, uh, you have redeemed us and bought us from the penalty of sin and of death and transferred us into the kingdom of your glorious son. Father, we pray that as we uh, walk through our week, through our year, we would do so in a way that continually acknowledges that, who we are before you. And that being secure in our relationship with you, we would be free to set aside our rights and privileges, looking forward to the reward we will one day receive. Father, we pray that we would reflect the character and the attitude of Jesus Christ in all that we do and say. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a wonderful week.